A very happy Palm Sunday to you. Just like to make a few announcements before we open our Bibles together to consider what we're going to study in the Gospel of Luke. If you have a handout, most of them are there just by way of a reminder, but one of them is immediately for today, right after service. Uh, there's going to be a group of people having an informational meeting led by Polly Kazmarek and Sally Davison for anyone that is uh, interested in assembling dresses and shorts for that will accompany the trip that goes to Haiti this summer, a project of a way to serve alongside of those who might physically go for those who physically won't be able to go but could show support by uh, making clothing that will be given as a free gift when they travel there. That'll happen right after service in the fellowship hall. Uh, our mom's group usually meets on Mondays, but it'll be on Tuesday this week because they're going to be going to the Akron Children's Museum, which is new to the city of Akron, uh, but therefore open on Tuesday and not on Monday. So 10 o'clock on Monday, any, uh, any moms are able to go and bring kids to the children's, Akron Children's Museum uh, at 10 o'clock on Tuesday. We also, with it being uh, the week of Easter, we have a Good Friday service here at 7 o'clock. Many of the, the same people that helped us at Christmas time put on a Christmas concert are going to be leading us in worship on Good Friday. So a few of the songs will be presented to us, and then we'll also have a time of congregational singing as well as a celebration of communion. So this Friday at 7 o'clock, we invite you back for a Good Friday service. Then on Saturday will be an opportunity for service projects inside and out, um, a spring cleanup that the deacons have set up for this Saturday of all types of skill levels. So if you can come on Saturday, uh, someone will find a job for you. And then on Sunday morning, Easter, we won't have any classes that we usually have at 9 o'clock, but we'll have a breakfast starting at 8.30. So we invite you anywhere from 8.30 up until 10 o'clock. A breakfast will be served in our fellowship hall. And so we encourage you to come and to bring your families and partake. And then we'll have our normally scheduled 10 o'clock service time here. And then immediately after Easter on that Monday, we're starting a new class called Compass. It'll be five Monday nights in a row. And this is a class designed to teach teens and young adults and together with their parents, if possible, uh, what the Bible says about the value and the importance of work and also how to choose a career or college and how it's possible for us to serve God and glorify him in every uh, area of our lives, whatever our particular jobs might be, uh, that we really can do everything to the glory of God. So that's going to start the Monday after Easter and be for five consecutive Mondays. If you would like to, more information about that class, just see me after church and I'll gladly give you more details about it. With that now, I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the Gospel of Luke, where we'll be in chapter 23 and read the first 25 verses together. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And we'll consider verses 1 through 25. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles provided for you, you'll find this on page 883. Just a forewarning, uh, today's topic gives us an opportunity to talk about the two things you're not supposed to talk about in public, which is religion and politics. Uh, one of those should not be a surprise to you, though you came to a church, so the fact that we talk about religion shouldn't throw you off. Um, but you'll see in our passage today that um, embedded in the last moments of Jesus' life is also an exchange of individuals who have political authority and things that they do or don't do that gives us some opportunity to reflect on not just individual people, but also systems that do exist in our world. So if you weren't interested before, hopefully that makes you at least a little bit interested now. Luke 23, then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation 
and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar in saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into the prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, What, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And we'll pick up verse 26 on Friday night at our Good Friday service. This isn't the traditional Palm Sunday passage. As a church, we're going through the Gospel of Luke chapter by chapter, and so we covered Jesus' entrance into the city a few weeks back, and here we are already in what we get together and celebrate on Good Friday. Thursday night has happened. Jesus was betrayed, and he's been undergoing a myriad of accusations and trials now early on, through the night on Thursday and into Friday morning. And sometimes people assume that the crowds that welcomed him on that Palm Sunday and were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord, are the same crowds described here, now saying, crucify him, crucify him. We don't really have a reason to believe that because there were, as we've been saying all along, probably hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. And so the idea that we're dealing with the exact same people in the crowds is incredibly unlikely, but certainly the mood has shifted from Sunday to Friday that what was an entrance that had a response of praise is now a very different scenario. And in fact, it is in part the response on that Palm Sunday where praise and adoration was given to Jesus that has led now to this situation on Friday. Because as people said that he was the one who comes in the name of the Lord, as they cried out Hosanna and, and, and said that Jewish prayer of save us now, Lord, that's what upset many of the religious leaders. Why are you saying that about him? 
He must be a dangerous person, and we have to take care of him, or everyone who's following us is going to start following him. And so here we are. They actually come, and they bring him now. Uh, They've had a trial the evening before. They've put a blanket over Jesus uh, after he was betrayed by Judas and then taken to a prison. One of the first things they did was kind of cover his face, and people took turns hitting him. And then in mocking him as they were hitting him, as his eyes were covered, they said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And so he's already been beaten up quite a bit before we pick up the passage this morning. But he's taken from that scene where he's already been beaten and mocked and mistreated and now taken before a ruler who's a ruler representative of the Roman Empire, not a ruler uh, like the chief priests and the elders who have jurisdiction over the temple. And so they come to him and the accusation to them is that Jesus says he's a Christ, a king. And many of the Roman leaders came and observed this week of Passover because it was a time when as many people were gathered together and part of what they were celebrating at Passover was the independence of their nation many, many years ago through Moses. And so here they are celebrating their independence, but they're not independent. And so sometimes people stand up and say, let's get independent again. Let's fight for freedom again. And so it wasn't just Jews that gathered together for this week of celebration, but other officials that would gather just to keep an eye on things and make sure no political upheaval would take place. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees bringing Jesus and saying, this is someone saying he's a king. He's trying to get followers. So it's not just us that need to pay attention to him, but you need to pay attention that he doesn't all of a sudden lead a revolt. And that's the accusation that's brought. Jesus is accused. And he, at least in this part, though, what's fascinating is what he is accused of is true about him. He is the king of the Jews. He has said that he is a king. And that claim is something that not only his people need to pay attention to, but Pilate himself does need to pay attention to. So there's truthfulness in this accusation at this point in time. But what Pilate quickly observes is that If that is what he's accusing, he doesn't demonstrate that he's making that claim in such a way as to present any kind of an immediate or direct threat. And so as as much as he can interact with them, he's not saying anything critical of Pilate or critical of Rome. Maybe he's made that claim, but he's making that claim in a way that is different than people before him had encountered it. But the accusation at this point is true. At his birth, he was announced the king of the Jews as his disciples claimed him to be the Christ and as they sang his praises when he entered in the city and announced him the king. That is exactly who he was. And so what we believe about Jesus does not simply have religious implications. It has political implications as well. He's claiming to be not just a king, in fact, but the king of kings and someone to whom all kings will one day bow and give allegiance But here we then see, just like last chapter, Dr. Luke took us slowly through the actions of Judas and the actions of Peter so that we saw Jesus betrayed in two different ways. We saw an active betrayal on the part of Judas, and then we saw a denial on the part of Peter. And we saw slowly through that chapter, as Luke retold the story to us, how sin can affect us individually. What he does here is he shows us two ways in which sin affects us collectively as a people. And he shows us both how we can get things wrong as it relates to our religious devotion and our political involvement. 
We're trying to make sense, not just of the details of what happened to Jesus, but what does this tell us about, if this could happen to Jesus, what does this tell us about the world in which we live in? The first point we would see that Luke is making to us is that religion can be hijacked. Religion can absolutely be hijacked. And sometimes when we see sin and frustration that exists in the world, and we see the individual actions of a Judas or a Peter, sometimes our response is, well, we need more devotion and religious zeal, more sincerity in our faith. And if the world just had people that were more devoted and more committed to their religious commitments, the world would be a better place. Here's the thing. If that's true, Jesus never would have ended up on a cross. Because no one lived their faith better than Jesus. No one was more sincere in their commitments No one could communicate them more effectively, and no one lived with greater integrity in his religious devotion and zeal than Jesus. So if he could do it perfectly and beautifully and compellingly, and at the end of it, end up on a cross, end up beaten and made fun of, spit upon and accused, and done by people who would have said they shared the same religion, we see that religion in and of itself is not going to be the way in which our society gets better or in fact that we get better. Because religion, just like anything else, can be hijacked. It can be used for the wrong ends. It can be manipulated as a group of people. And sometimes people just do things because other people do them. And so in the crowd that was praising him on Palm Sunday... We don't know how many of those people were sincere. Just maybe somebody started the song, and when someone starts a song, people join in. And here, people are doing a chant. We don't know that how many of them are really even paying attention. Who's Barabbas, and who's Jesus, or who's not? They're just crying out for blood. They're in a crowd, and they're following a crowd, and they're doing what crowds do. And for some people who say, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as we're sincere in our religion. That's what matters most. Listen, the people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, were sincere. You can't doubt that at all. The people that threw the blanket over him and started beating him up were sincere. And so we say, no, no, no. The issue when it comes to religion is not just whether you're sincere or not. We have to have a conversation about what do you believe in your religion? What does it lead you to do to other people? Because it's possible for any religion to be used to abuse other people to misuse them and to actually get far away from God under the guise and cloak of a religion because nobody was more devoted more had more integrity or lived life more beautifully than Jesus and yet as he did it instead of being celebrated along the way by those leaders he was viewed as competition and so everything that if you will in in just economic terms was an asset became a liability Every good thing he did became some of the very things that in the darkness of their own hearts, they then rejected and they didn't want him to see. And and you can talk to anyone who's not a believer in Christ and ask them if they think religion can be hijacked and they'll say, oh, absolutely. And that's why I don't believe in Jesus. And, And they can tell you experiences either that they've had or newspaper stories around the world And they look at it and say, I see that when people think they're doing things for God, that doesn't always mean good things happen. And in fact, it means more often than not a lot of bad things happen. 
And so some of them think, well, if we just took God out of the equation, then we'd actually have a peaceful world. Except Luke, Luke basically gives us that option as well and says, no, it doesn't get better. You can take God out of it and think if we just had a power in place that had enough authority that wasn't as interested in all of the religious issues and why people don't like people or what, and they were just a neutral political power with the authority to execute justice, they would right the wrongs. And Luke is saying, then you can't explain how Jesus ends up on a cross either. Because here you actually have Jesus brought to a neutral governing authority who's not in any way concerned about the religious beliefs of the people involved. And it's Pilate. He represents the Roman government. But justice is denied to Jesus. Religion is hijacked and justice is denied. Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster, before the rooster crowed. Pilate three times declares him innocent. I find no guilt in this man. He hasn't done anything wrong. Let me release him. Let me, like you beat him up, let me beat him up, have some people beat him up, we'll send him away, and, and he'll be punished, and he won't cause any more trouble. But that isn't sufficient for the crowd. And so Pilate, just out of indifference, says, okay, I mean, I tried. I made this offer, I made this offer, but repeat it again and again. He's innocent. He's done nothing deserving of death nothing deserving of death he's not guilty he doesn't deserve to die and yet he dies and here's the thing he dies legally the ruling authority makes the decision and says he's going to be executed and there's no human power above him and as christians we recognize that we don't reduce our morality to simply what's legal there are things that are legal for you and I to do, but they're immoral. They're wrong. And there are things at times, depending who gets on power, that we're told to do that we say, no, 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 it, it would be wrong for us to do that. Or they say it's illegal to do it, and we say, no, you can't make this illegal. <laughs> we have a deeper category for considering what's ethical or not in the world than simply what's legal or what's illegal. Because we also see through human history that it's not just that you and I struggle with sin, but then the very things we try to put in place to alleviate the sinfulness of this world can also be hijacked, can also be used for the wrong ends. And so what is set up as power and authority in order to alleviate injustice can actually sometimes be the very means by which injustice is magnified. And that, again, is a story that we see retold throughout human history. And it, it's just as dangerous when that government sets itself up, whether they believe in something or they try to have some form of neutrality and would say they're completely secular or atheist. And you have them. You can look back in the history of the 20th century and specifically see political power that set itself up and said we are specifically by design opposed to God, sought to become a God to the people, and completely mistreated their nations. And we see that in a small form in the story of what happens to Jesus. Because if religious zeal was enough and integrity and devotion was enough, Jesus himself never would have ended up on a cross. And then if the ways that we try to organize ourselves and create communities and, and governments and structures were sufficient to make sure that those things were then dealt with appropriately, 
then here again it would have been stopped. Pilate would have said, I'm sorry, you can, you can yell crucify all you want, but I'm not crucifying him because he's innocent. But the way Luke tells this, retells the story for us is to say he knew he was innocent and he didn't care. He seemed to care a little bit, but he didn't care enough. So how else can you describe someone who puts to death someone that they know is innocent? And he did it legally. And so as Christians, when we look out at the world, we don't necessarily think the solution is simply sincerity in what people believe. Because people can believe, can be sincerely wrong. And we don't look at it and say, if only we had more power and more authority, we'd figure out how to run everything right, and then we'd, we'd have a whole lot less problems. I don't know. Uh, we'd, be, we'd succumb to many of the temptations that many people do when they have a disproportionate level of power and authority. Christians aren't anti-religion, and they're not anti-government. We're just honest about both of them. We're realists about them. That yes, there was nothing wrong in the actual religion or the law that God gave to his people. It came from him. It was good. But something even good given by God can be used and misused to the wrong ends. There's nothing wrong with authority and governing. There has to be authority. That's part of how the world is designed. And so we have to think not just about ourselves, but about the neighborhoods we live in, about the cities and the country and the world that we live in. And we engage in all of those things. We're not anti-authoritarian. But we also recognize that in everything that we do and in every sphere of society that we participate in, sin is not just a problem we're tempted with, but sin is something that manifests itself collectively and corporately, systemically. And you know sin is systemic when it happens without trying. When something can happen that's wrong to someone else through indifference, that's when you see that it's truly systemic. There's murder on the one hand, and then there's just carelessness. The result could end in the life of two different people. But we, we see that, and as Christians, we're to be honest about that, not as then an excuse to not take our own religion seriously or even our participation in the government seriously, but it is to recognize that when we see people put all of their eggs in those baskets, they are set up for despair. Right? Some people will say, you just can't have a political conversation anymore. And the truth is, you can't have a political conversation with anyone who has politics as their substitute God. You can have a political conversation with someone you disagree with if you and that person aren't putting all of your hope in any one person or any one party or any one legislative issue to be the answer to all of your problems. You can have a robust disagreement, but when you're having a, a disagreement with someone who has exalted that to the position of what they worship, what they celebrate, what they believe is the hope of the world, then yeah, good luck having a productive conversation. You can talk to someone about what they believe and why they believe it and how they came to their commitments and what their family story is in their religious commitments. But when you see someone who's working as hard as they can in their religious commitments, hoping that through that they're going to earn their way to heaven and that they have to do it right, you're not going to be able to talk that person down from what they believe or what they're committed to. 
And when we see Jesus suffering as an innocent person by both religious and political leaders, part of what he is in his very life teaching us and demonstrating to us is that salvation for us won't come by our religious seal and it won't come by our political involvement. It will come not when we make substitutes for God in those things, but by God substituting himself for us. That's how it comes. The very last thing that happens when we read is that this person, Barabbas, who has a horrible rap sheet, is let go. He's set free. There was a, a, a legal loophole that the governor could present people to the crowd, and even though they're all guilty of something, someone as an act of mercy could be set free. And so it's in this opportunity that Pilate is saying, okay, I haven't been able to do it all the way up until now, but maybe here, maybe in this moment, he'll be the one that gets set free. And they say, no, 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 don't set him free. We'd rather Barabbas go free. And so he does. And in that is a small picture of when we, when we read what happens in the final moments of Jesus' life, when we try to make sense of how something like this could happen to Jesus and why he would go through it. We're left with a million puzzling questions until we come to this one realization that everything he was doing was not for himself, but for you and for me. If this was all about himself and he was all about preserving his own health and his own situation, he wouldn't have entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And on Monday and Tuesday, as things began to heat up, he would have been gone. And in fact, he did go back and forth from different places. All opportunities and moments for escape, if that was his primary objective. But what if, he, if what he came to do was not for himself, but for you and me? For those of us who struggle with our own sins and who swim enveloped by systems of sin. Then we understand why he chose to stay. Then we understand why he chose to be beaten, to be accused, to be mocked, to be scorned, and all of those things. We can't make sense of it until we see that what he is doing, he is doing because it's what you and I need. Because everything that we've created, even in our best and most sincere efforts, to be a substitute for God, to try to get our way there, has completely fallen short. And unless God substitutes himself for us, we have no hope. But he shows if he does substitute himself, then freedom is secured. If he's willing to come in and not just pay the penalty for individual sin, but for the problem of sin, and he's willing to be in our place, then someone gets set free. You and I experience freedom from trying to save ourselves trying to solve all the world's problems through political means. And he sets us free. Free to then have religious zeal, but to do it in a way that actually makes us better human beings and better, better neighbors to live with and around. And to still be politically involved and to fight against injustice in this world, but to do it in a way that recognizes even if we do our best efforts, we're going to be punished along the way. We're going to suffer for our religious zeal. We're going to suffer for any attempt we make to actually alleviate suffering. It doesn't make sense. If we're committed to alleviate suffering, 
why would we suffer? But that's the only conclusion you can come to when you study the life of Jesus. He healed people. He fed hungry people. Just on his actions alone, how did he end up on a cross? And sometimes we we make the assumption, well, if we get better at feeding people and clothing people and doing this or that, we'll never suffer anything. And Jesus said, how could you believe that? If I ended up on the cross, feeding people, clothing people, serving them, there's going to be suffering that Christians experience as they seek to alleviate injustice in this world. But if Christians know that ahead of time, then they'll be committed to both of those things all the way through. Suffering won't knock you off in what you believe, in your religious commitments, and suffering won't knock you off in your attempts to alleviate injustice because you know ahead of time that that's, that's the unfortunate reality of the broken world that we live in. Because Christ experienced it, we should expect to experience it, but be Christ, also because Christ has overcome it, we should live in the freedom that his victory has given us, that we're free to love, we're free to give, we're free to serve, not as a sideways way of doing really something for ourselves, but knowing that everything that was needed to be done for us has been done, and so we're free to give and to love and to serve other people. And that's why if you check the news before you came to church this morning, you saw that a Coptic church in Egypt was bombed on Palm Sunday. And you'd sit there and say, God, how does that make sense? They're gathering together to worship, to celebrate your victory. In sincerity, now at the beginning of what is to be a week of celebrations. And then as you study their history, they represent about 10% of the population of Egypt, and this has been going on for 2,000 years. And you know what they'll do? They'll get together on Good Friday. Everyone who's left will get together on Easter Sunday. And they will keep on professing the name of Jesus, surrounded by religious zeal that's been hijacked, knowing full well that more often than not, justice will be denied them, but celebrating that God has substituted himself for them. And so they won't quit, and they won't stop, and they won't stop loving. That's what we're called to as we celebrate Easter. If all of that could happen to Jesus, who did it all better than we can, we're to experience the freedom that he gave us to live in the fullness of it and to be prepared for whatever comes. I love this hymn that summarizes so well when we think about these final moments of Jesus. The, the phrase of the prophet Isaiah to describe what it would be like when God would come in our stead was that he would be called the man of sorrows. And when we see these final moments of what Jesus endures, it's an apt description and so the hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. 
full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You as we see how religion was abused and misused around Your Son. And as we see that power and authority to implement justice was denied Your Son. We thank You for the love of Your Son for us. and that the very things he experienced were the very reason that he came. We pray that you would help us, many of us who have been blessed to be surrounded by believers, but have not allowed our ideas or our expectations to be shaped by your son directly, that you'd, you'd reshape our minds and our expectations and our hearts that as we see what happened to your son would create in us uh, a new expectation, one of how desperately we needed you, but also of the type of resilience and strength and courage that you want to give us as your children, that you have come to set us free from all of our attempts to save ourselves and to save other people and to enable us to be free to love and to serve, to give, to fight. And so we pray that you would drive that home through your spirit into our hearts and minds as throughout this week we think of all of those incredible moments in your last days on this earth that you would draw our attentions and our minds to how great your love is and how great the opportunities before us are to love you back. In your name we pray.